Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Technology Analyst. What's up, Ben? Steve, it's great to see you again. It's good to be back. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about was what hands-on experience do you have when you're a wee little guy back in high school or early college on either manufacturing, construction, or... I guess gardening too. I mean, what did you do hands-on back in the day? Oh man, absolutely nothing. <laughs> like I think, you know, when it comes to like gardening, doing around the house kind of stuff, my dad learned pretty quickly that I was pretty useless uh, with like weeding and stuff like that. I he even uh, in in I think middle school um, paid him and my best friend at the time uh, to paint like this old busted shed. We had in the backyard. They, you know, he actually paid us a good amount of money, right? Uh, and bought like you know the primer and paint from Home Depot, and we just did the most horrendous <laughs> job. And we're like, money, please. That's a bad investment <laughs> it, for him. Yeah, it was a terrible investment for him. That thing rotted so fast too. It doesn't exist anymore. But we also don't live in that house anymore. Um, when it comes to like shop class and stuff like that, there was like also like this engineering class that everybody thought was so cool because they were like, Oh man, you don't even have to raise your hand because your desk has a light on it. And when you have a question or a problem, you just flip the switch and it puts the light on. Everybody thought that was the coolest thing growing up in Arlington and Arlington, Virginia and Fairfax County, Virginia uh, with all of the, uh, the well-to-do, yuppie white people in this area i was never one of those privileged kids who had their parents fight for them to get them in all of the fun elective classes like that sure so yeah i i, I never got to take any of those classes i never got to learn in shop class how to use a drill press right when it's pretty straightforward and simple but like you know it, it's I, I i missed out on that stuff however you know um getting into video games um that it, a little too into video games and grades started slipping. My parents sent me to military schools. I've told you guys before. And I will say that in military school, I got a lot of awesome opportunities that I doubt uh, a lot of kids at the time, especially kids today had the opportunity to do. Um, I was on a competition rifle team, That's cool. like shooting 22 rifles, yeah. uh, Olympic style, 22 rifles at 50 feet, which sounds hard, but the target is about the size of a quarter yep. at 50 feet. Um, and you had to be in this dead center to get full points on target. And it was 10 targets per match uh, in each position, you know, standing, crouched, and prone. Um, I only ever got a perfect 100 uh, in prone once. Mm -hmm. And I got a 99. I was so shy <laughs> of getting a 100 in so crouch. Close. Standing, standing, my uh, coach said I was about as accurate as a match grade shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one thing that I definitely also learned from military school was, you know, we did a lot of drill, you know, do a lot of military marching drill. And part of that is knowing how to march and knowing how to do, you know, different commands with a, with a rifle. Right. And the military school, Fishburne military school that I went to in Waynesboro, Virginia, um, the students drilled with decommissioned M1 Grand rifles. That's cool. And now they cut the springs, the recoil springs, so they weren't full tension right. uh, because, you know, they needed all these weak high school kids to be able to pull the <laughs> bolt back on an M1. And that's a tough spring. And they also wanted to make sure if that bolt comes forward, because you probably heard of Grand Thumb before, yeah. um, if that 
bolt comes forward on your thumb. They didn't want to send kids to the hospital because they did something wrong. So they weakened the spring, but I knew how to use an M1 Garand. And in college, my uh, best friend's dad uh, completed the civil, the U.S. civilian marksmanship marksmanship program yep. and was given the opportunity to buy a uh, M1 Garand, like an original M1 that yep. was World War II era. Yep. And we went to uh, the lake house for spring break uh, one, one year. And his dad brought that and was like, yeah, you guys go out in the back, go back into the woods and just, you know, here's some end block clips, you know, loose a few rounds into the, uh, into the woods. And we did that. And when we got out there and we set everything up, uh, Chuck and my other roommate, best friend, Joanne, they were like, we don't know how to use that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, none of the buttons or controls are like labeled or right. anything. So it was like, you know, it was training. You had to know that stuff. But I was like, I might know how to use it. We never shot them, but I know how it operates, you know? Yeah. And loaded an end block clip, you know, pumped all eight rounds out of it, heard the little ping eject. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I do know how to use this thing. That's amazing. And experience. so that was really cool about military school. And that's yeah. like, that's like subconscious, you know, uh, um, um, education yeah. that, that I got to experience from like, you know, military school drilling something into your head. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fun experience. And I'm glad you're able to, you know, carry that knowledge in the future and glad nobody died from shooting that, ex- from that shooting experience. Also that's, that's handy. I don't know where those eight bullets went. <laughs> <laughs> the recoil on a 30 out six in a semi-automatic is, is pretty intense. That's a big bullet. Uh, you know, yeah. so when, when I was growing up, my parents had a, a couple of properties and they're too cheap to have like uh, a, like a paid, someone to have uh, fix it up for us so my dad and uh, i would often spend our weekends doing tons of construction when i was in high school and then uh once uh i got out of high school and early college i was doing a lot of car repair because again we're too cheap to take it to the garage we end up fixing yeah. our own stuff we bought a lot of haynes manuals and uh, i think it was chillin manuals also um back when you oh, had cool. to buy books for to figure out how to use a car <laughs> or how to fix a car um so that carried over to you know i, I think where uh, I transitioned to my career that, you know, all the hands-on things that I learned to do and um, allowed me to be a manufacturing engineer early in my career. And that helped me understand where I want to go in my future career. And I thought that was very beneficial. Just, you know, I wasn't given a lot of opportunities in school. So we did have a shop class, but even in college, there wasn't like a manufacturing class in the early, uh, in the late nineties and early two thousands. There was, might've been one or something on composites. There's a couple of labs we had in aerospace engineering, but not a that's cool. Not a true like manufacturing class. So I, I do see there's a deficiency there that I think changed. And you know the reason I want to have a discussion was one of our peer organizations, the uh, Technology and Manufacturing Association, uh, just graduated 38 students from their uh, related theory apprentice program. So you know it's amazing to see that there are these vibrant programs releasing students into the manufacturing world. To be to be honest, m- my goal would be for them to be safe, you know, for you learning yes. how, to, how to handle firearms. And that's the biggest thing I learned in manufacturing is that if you know how a machine works, then you know how to operate it safely. And I think the two are interrelated where knowledge of manufacturing inherently uh, grows safety in, in operation. So that, I thought that was amazing to see uh, that article on the, the apprentice program. Absolutely. I'm glad, you know, if, if there's one thing that's changed in tradition or that's, that's stayed true in tradition as much as uh, technology has changed, you know, uh, a machine tool from a hundred years ago 
to a you know a modern machine tool like freshly being shipped and coming off the assembly line today mm-hmm. uh I'm glad the one thing that's still the same in and it's in common with the two of them, those machines separated apart is a big red E stop. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. See, yeah, it, it's almost like you don't even have to be trained. You that, know what that button does, you, which is really cool. Yeah. You, it's obvious enough that if you don't know how to run a machine, that thing will hopefully save your life. Yeah. Uh, let's, sure. let's get into some articles, man. You talked about some uh, 3d, uh, 3d printing precision. Yes, yes. The first article that I got that I'm really excited about even is um, an article from SciTech Daily. Uh, The title is 3D Printing Tiny Ultra-Precise Parts for Massive Impact. And it's a, uh, this um, professor and I'm sure a team of other researchers at MIT um, and another company that this is working for, but in the Boston area, they have developed uh, 3D printing technology, 3D printing machines, 3D printers um, that can produce ultra precise, uh, very small parts um, that typically not only would you not think of additive being able to do, but the type of parts that you would think would come off of Swiss machines. Okay. And this week, this is just one of like the three articles that I saw, not about this particular instance. There's another firm in like uh, Switzerland that's doing something similar, mm-hmm. um, mostly for the, and they're of course doing it for like, you know, the watchmaking and jewelry industry, but it's using additive. And, but, but reading this article was like, oh, like Boston, MIT and, and, and Boston, the, you know, the region of the United States, Boston, Massachusetts, is uh, really leading the way uh-huh. with this precise and, and microscopic additive technology that I, I got excited immediately because, you know, when we think, you know, cutting and machining small parts, immediately you think Swiss machines, Swiss lathes, et cetera. Sure. Um, it could be in our future that if we want Swiss-like parts, but with additive, we're talking about Boston printers. Sure. That'd be cool. You know, Bostonian printers <laughs> could be the the title of like, you know, small ultra precision additive parts. All the parts and that I, have I, an accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're from Southie. <laughs> you know, that that is a fascinating trend. And I the the biggest benefit I see is being able to include like, you know, um lubrication channels or, you know, enhancing the the features to create uh, internal geometry in those additive parts, you know, make them lighter if needed or tune, be able to tune them like in, you know, watchmaking, I'm sure being able to tune the weight of these objects or their mirror oh, yeah. towards the end or towards the center, I think there's a lot of benefits. So just a one-to-one replacement, and, whatever. And strength too, not yeah, just yeah. strength in design, like being able to print like miniature lattice structures. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite things about additive and probably always will be one of my favorite things about additive is the fact that they're, you know, the research has shown that it's easier to print. It's easier to use additive technology with certain materials than it is for subtractive. Sure. Yeah. Like, and, and that's crazy to me. Like, that's like that yeah. it's easier to print titanium and Inconel and stuff like in some of the super alloys like that than it is to like cut and, and, and turn them. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Uh, I've got an article also on precision. It's a precision metrology increasing in the role of EV gear manufacturing. So being an EV gear myself, 
well, hybrid. So, but it's a new, it's yeah. my new tagline, Steve. I'm an EV guy now. Heck um, yeah. Uh, it talks about a couple of things, you know, the growth of the EV market. So not just, uh, you know, pure plug-in uh, vehicles, but also hybrids, mm-hmm. right? And, and for me personally, I see that as the sustainable future, not just buying billions of batteries, but also combining internal combustion with hybrids and, you know, varying that, sh- uh, that uh, percentage between the two. Um, and it talks about, the need for uh, the precision manufacturing, a uh, precision gear manufacturing, for a couple of uh, end use cases. Uh, so it talks about um, electric cars for efficiency, uh, or what they could call rangeability. You know, the overall range and gear noise. Sure. Those are two key elements that they see are uh, roadblocks for uh, EV uh, gears using EV. Gear noise, huh? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Uh, I mean, there's I only. I kind of like the wine of a gear. Well, I mean, if you like the supercharger, wine. if it's a luxury, yeah. if it's yeah. a luxury product, people people who are uh, consumers of luxury goods don't want any, especially like cars, they don't right. want any noise whatsoever. So I get that. And I think the noise is part of uh, you know the paradigm shift. You're, everyone's used to a car droning. No one's mm-hmm. used to an electric motor droning yet. Yeah. So I think in you know five years, ten years, if the problem still exists, it'll just people will get accept accept of it. Um, but you know, the, the article talks about, uh, you know, actually manufacturing the parts. So they mentioned that continuous uh, generating grinding, um, utilizing thread wheels to be in constant contact is one way to get, uh, the two structure that they're looking for. Uh, and it offers the, uh, uh, path to get, uh, the texture and the waviness of, to improve the, uh, the gear itself. So you can reduce the gear noise and increase the efficiency of the, tooth uh, being in contact with each other. So that's the core of it. So, you know, manufacturing these methods, but the article gets into, okay, now what's the best way to measure it? How do I know uh, these basically surface anomalies are not existent anymore? Uh, and it gets into 3D non-contact optical profilers, uh, which I like because they mentioned uh, coherence, scanning, inferomity. I think I pronounced that correctly. Interferometry. Interferometry. Thank you, Steve. Uh, or CSI. CSI Miami, if you're that type of thing. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was fairly interesting. Basically, it's a, a non-contact uh, way to measure the uh, uh, surface uh, profile and surface um, uh, topography. Uh, and it not only looks at you know a single tooth, but it's able to stitch several objects, several pictures together so you can see a larger profile or you know several teeth together. Uh, and it p- creates a, um, you know, it measures 3D t- topography of the surface and it, um, you know, not interfering with the touching the part itself. Um, so I thought that was fairly interesting and it can be scaled up for any gear because you can stitch several objects together. So the end use of any acquired gear, I need better surface finish, better topography on the gear that requires better manufacturing processes and better inspection methods. So I thought that's a very interesting string to pull on. Yeah, it is. And just to correct myself, correcting you interferometry. Thank you for we the forgot that last R. No, 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 no worries. You know, these, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what your experience is. A lot of these, these words like are, are tough because, you know, I've been into cigars since I've been, uh, you know, in high school. Sure. Um, as bad as that sounds. Um, and I just learned like this year that the little tool, the little uh, gauge that you use to measure the relative humidity of your humidor right. when uh, storing cigars. I've been calling that my whole life a hydrometer. Sure. I remember that. It's a hygrometer. Oh. it's There's no D in there. You're, it's it's a hard G, hygrometer. I think I could put a hygrometer in my lawn to see how much moisture it's 
This whole time, I thought it was hydrometer. I've been sounding like a big dingus. Steve, all the cigar guys you've been talking to have been laughing at you. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> CSI right. Las Vegas? Which one's your favorite? <laughs> I, I, you know, I honestly never watched any of them. Oh, you're not missing I've much. seen a few videos, videos, or I mean episodes of, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe it was Miami. Sure. But that guy who uh, tries to be too cool. He puts on is, the glasses and they yeah. play the music afterwards. Is he redhead or is he just a really weird blonde? No, I think he's a redhead. Okay. Yeah, he, he did too much overacting. If you guys know who the lead actor in CSI Miami is, send us a fax. <laughs> <laughs> send us a fax. Like, remember in the movie um, Liar Liar when yeah. uh, Jim Carrey is accused of being an overactor in the outtakes <laughs> yeah. and when the credits are rolling? Jim Carrey doesn't have anything on this guy. <laughs> Steve, let's talk about Women in Manufacturing Hall of Fame. You found a little something on the... Yeah, yeah. So Kat posted in our industry news Slack channel... channel that uh, women in manufacturing has uh, is now has opened and is now accepting nominations. So, if anybody, any of our listeners, know some women in manufacturing that have you know been an influence and what to use Kat's words, where did they go? Who have made a positive impact in increasing female representation in the manufacturing industry? Go ahead and you know give them. A, Click the link in the description below and, you know, nominate, give a, give some slight details to uh, uh, who you are and who they are and um, submit them. And that's opening. That's now open for the 2021 women in manufacturing hall of fame. So uh, yeah, I just thought it was cool. Um, and I, it's it's nice to see lists like these, and I hope to be reporting on it soon. Absolutely, yeah, definitely follow up to see uh, who's who's submitted, uh, uh, you know, potential candidates, and report back on who's uh, who's in the hall. Oh, of fame. yeah, and I'd like to mention that, uh, that that Kat also stated that nominations are not reserved to those who work at manufacturers. Employees of found foundations, associations, organizations, etc., are all eligible. Awesome. So, I mean, we could. We could uh, uh, nominate people too. Absolutely, like Melissa or Pam. <laughs> so Pam's retired, but I'm still nominating Pam. You, you should, you should do that. <laughs> she was a heavily influenced in our department. Yes. She's in was Bolivia, <laughs> Bolivia, Bolivia, <the> North Carolina. <laughs> it's very misleading when you tell her that she's in Bolivia. Yeah, she retired and moved to Bolivia. Yeah, that's amazing to start a new life. I can't wait for my retirement. Not in Bolivia, but in general. Uh, Same. The last article I got is about um, uh, shaft measurements. Uh, so how to choose the best shaft measurement tool for your specific application. When do you measure your shaft? Uh, Steve, it's, I think it's underrated for people to talk about how difficult shaft manufacturing is. So it's, I would say it's a parallel to gear manufacturing, right? There's, you've got, uh, you know, two different objects that you're trying to connect and there's a lot of nuances in trying to make something straight, something concentric, yeah. something with a good surface finish or acceptable surface finish. And then if you add additional features, like maybe a gear in the middle or like a um, uh, uh, end plate or a mounting plate or other end features, maybe a, a spline at the end, then it increases yeah. the complexity, right? So you're constantly adding value to this straight bar, right? You could buy raw bar stock that you, you know, turn down or grind down. Sure. Then you add all these other features, then you're constantly adding value and then you get this end 
uh, end part where you've got a machine, you know, a couple of holes for a mounting plate, and you screw up the hole, then you got to scrap all everything back. Right, 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 right. We saw something like that in uh, yesterday when we were fil- filming uh, machining fails. Yeah. But one thing I do remember, and I think I was in either high school or college when I originally saw this. You know, my parents had uh, cable TV back mm-hmm. in the house. You know, back when cable TV was a thing. But uh, one of my favorite channels to watch, especially in the weekends, was uh, the Speed Network. Yep. And, you know, they, they were there were a bunch of shows on Speed that uh, were, like, working on cars and stuff. And I will always remember this really cool clip of uh, one of the, those, those you know, working on car shows was talking about camshafts. Yeah. And they did a really cool demonstration. They took this old – they were swapping camshafts in, like, a Chevy LS. And they took out the old camshaft. And he was talking about like, you know, the, the internals of the material mm-hmm. that of like the forged cam shaft. Um, it's, it's like uh, strengthened and stress relieved in a way that like, if you held it upright, so it's vertical, the shaft is upright and drop it on the ground. When it hits the ground, it'll be totally fine. But if you uh, put it on its side and you drop it on the ground, it'll shatter into a million pieces. Oh, and he demonstrated that he dropped it on, on its end. Yep was totally fine then he held it horizontal and dropped it it like blew up <laughs> that's fascinating. it was wild so shaft i feel like there's a lot that goes in the shaft manufacturing and uh, all jokes aside watching uh camshaft grinding is really scary there's a lot of moving parts in that thing <laughs> I, you know i don't think you're the only person who's yeah. afraid of camshaft grinding because remember uh, a couple years ago vw before dieselgate vw had that issue where their engines were shearing cam lobes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it was because they were trying to skip the step of uh, camshaft grinding. Yep. They were trying to find an easier, cheaper method of manufacturing camshafts. But oh, go on. Yeah. So the article gets into you know the best technique uh, to measure these uh, parts, and the the t- key takeaway is that it's actually a combination of several things, right? So you want to improve uh, on the efficiency of metrology or improve the speed of metrology in this particular case where in, mo- in most cases you could just use the CMM. CMM will measure just about anything that you want as long as you can touch it with a probe. Uh, you got to watch out for, you know, uh, some c- uh, cosine error and things like that if, if your probe mm-hmm. isn't aligned properly. But, you know, they're talking, if you just have a straight shaft, the you, you just use optical measuring tools. You, you could use um, a different way to measure the, the straightness or, uh, you know, non-contact uh, measurement systems work out very, very well for those features. Uh, so measuring, you know, 80% of a shaft with an optical measuring system and then go to something contact where you need for like, maybe there's a spline in the middle or, you know, um, like a hex on the ha- end of the shaft uh, where the the optical systems don't work uh, either because it's casting shadows or there's not enough accuracy or for whatever reason, then you go to that for uh, contact method and I thought that was a very interesting approach where it's it's a it's a shift where people always talk about a one size fits all where no let's break it up into uh, its components and figure out the best fastest inspection method for that uh, feature on the part and then combine all your metrology data to say yeah the part is good after you know several uh, inspection methods uh, so I, I thought it was a you know f- fair enough takeaway that don't measure the entire shaft with all the features on the CMM, break it up into its components and then, or its yeah. features and then uh, use the fastest method for those features. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. It's, you know, when you read the article and you talk about it, it's like, yeah, it sounds is. really complicated <laughs> yeah. and technical. 
Yeah. But you know, when you, when you get to the, the intro paragraph and you compare it to the conclusion paragraph, yeah, it's yeah. like, Oh, okay. And, and, and to be fair, I think when you're talking about value, value being added to the part throughout the manufacturing process, manufacturing is really about, you know, managing risk. So if I, if I just grind a shaft and then I'm able to do a quick inspection through a, a non-contact and I know mm-hmm. that it's good as opposed to waiting towards the end where maybe the shaft wasn't correct, but I added all these other value features. Now I've got to either scrap it, right? So catching the flaw before I keep adding value to it is very important too. So, you know, not only um, uh, checking the features based on the fastest metrology method, but also mitigating risk and carrying value too high up and catching value. So it's also, sounds like a timing issue too in the, in the world process too. So a lot, a lot of good takeaways today. I, I thought that was uh, a, a good look at it. And then, you know, if people listening, it, it's fairly reasonable to ask your manufacturing just here, is this the best way to measure these individual features as opposed to the best way to measure the entire part? Sure. Awesome. Steve, where can they find more info about us? They can find our listeners, <laughs> not just they, our listeners can find more info about us at amtonline.org slash resources there they can subscribe to the weekly tech report and listen to previous episodes of the podcast awesome steve this was a great episode thanks it was fun thank you ben bye everybody bye